you've got to try and if you fail, fail fast and try to be different and follow your heart and be true to yourself, treat people well. And it's a very collaborative industry. A lot of that's become from having to defend it as an industry. It's never had the best headlines in some of the national newspapers. And yet I would always say the power of play is absolutely wonderful and a positive for society. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today I'm with Sir Ian Livingston, the author, angel investor and founder of Games Workshop. Ian founded Games Workshop in 1975 and has been a pivotal figure in the gaming industry ever since. Games Workshop started as a manufacturer of wooden board games before it turned into the high street icon we still see today. The company is now worth £3.55 billion and Ian is enjoying his career as an author, angel investor and an advocate for digital creativity and later this month will open his own academy in Bournemouth. Ian, welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. So that's quite the introduction. Uh, You've done quite a lot of stuff. I'm sure you'll be the first to jump out and point out the world was slightly different in 1975. So I'd like to start uh, with the 60s and 70s. So talk to us a little bit about fantasy in the 60s and 70s. Like what, what was that sort of world like? Obviously now the idea of this stuff with uh, video games is just prevalent everywhere, this idea of fantasy escaping out of your world and into another world. What about then? Well, in the 60s and the early 70s, clearly there was no digital platforms to enjoy fantasy and science fiction content on. But there were comics and there were books. Of course, I'd read Lord of the Rings and many comics and loved these worlds where you could escape and do things that you couldn't possibly do in a real world. And I was always an avid games player. I used to play Monopoly at school. I used to play chess for the school. And it was at school that I met my two co-founders of Games Workshop, Steve Jackson and John Peake. And when we left school, went our separate ways and met back up in London and had pretty boring, poorly paid jobs. I used to play board games in the evening and thought one day, wouldn't it be good if we could somehow turn our passion of playing games into some sort of fledgling business? And that's really how Games Watch started in a flat in Shepherd's Bush in 1975. So Ian, it's 1975. Uh, You've got three founders, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, one big idea. What was that idea? Like, how did this all get started? You mentioned Shepherd's Bush, very close to me. I'm in Kensal Rice, so, you know, a few minutes away. Talk to me a little bit about what the what the magic was. What was the idea? Like, why did you decide you needed to do this? Well, being games players, we thought it'd be wonderful if we could somehow turn our hobby into a fledgling business. But we didn't know really how to do that. Um, so we decided to publish a little newsletter called Owl and Weasel and send it out to everybody we knew in games. And for some reason, don't know how, but a copy of Alan Weasel landed on the desk of Gary Gygax, who lived in late Geneva, Wisconsin. Gary wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Here's a game I've just invented. What do you think? And that game was Dungeons and Dragons. And it was in a white box with a very ordinary illustration on the cover. But when you open up that box, it opened up your imagination like no other game had done before. I don't think any game ever will again. It was the first role-playing game in which you're a hero, a wizard, and you explore dungeons killing monsters and finding treasure and going these fantastic journeys of the mind. So we ordered six copies and on the back of that order, we got the exclusive three-year distribution agreement for the whole of Europe because Gygax was also operating out of a flat in Lake Geneva. Do you think, you know, it sounds to me a little bit like um, serendipity. Seneca says, luck is opportunity meeting preparedness. And in this sense, you've got three people really interested in the space. And you have this sort of opportunity randomly to connect with someone because of a product you've created. It creates this magic moment in time where you're given like licensing opportunity for Europe. Like, you know, it doesn't sound like there was much of a fight for it, right? It sounds like it sort of landed in your lap and you were good to go. Yeah, but you may make your own luck. I mean, if we hadn't sent that newsletter out, that wouldn't have happened. And if we hadn't grasped the opportunity to become distributors, it wouldn't have happened. So I think lots of people get presented with opportunities that don't always make the most of it. I mean, throughout my whole life, people said, oh, I had that idea. And I usually say to them, well, why didn't you do something about it then? Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to 1975, we started selling it mail order through our newsletter and we didn't have a phone in our flat, of course, there were no mobile phones 
back in those days, but there was a, a public payphone on the ground floor, which we shared with our landlord. And it was always going to be a telephone sale for, for us and <laughs> hear the phone ring and run down the stairs, always too late. The landlord would be there first and used to hang up on most of the people phoning in because it just irritated him. And that made people even more wanting to find out more about Gaines Workshop. And we called the company Gaines Workshop because John, who was a civil engineer by trade, was actually an incredible craftsman. And the first games that you referred to at the beginning of this piece was about he made backgammon boards, which I used to sell to game shops before D&D got going. But then D&D really begins took off relative to the size of our business at the time. And a year later, Steve and I decided to go full-time. John was not keen on role-playing games, so he left the company. And Steve and I headed to the States to meet Gary Gygax, TSR, and all the fledgling games companies that were setting up in the mid-70s. This is actually the first time my wife has ever pre-prepared a question for me in any of my interviews with any founder, but she wants to know what your D&D name was because... Um, she, it turns out, is a big D&D player and fan, as I learned this week. Okay, it's Anvar the Barbarian. It's a little bit long in the tooth now, but um, he's still fighting on occasionally. Very good. All right. She'd like to let you know that hers was Night Monkey. <laughs> I pressed her for further questions. She didn't have much of a rationale. Okay. <laughs> and to, just to finish that off, Steve Jackson's was called Crew, but we managed to kill him off quite quickly. But son of Crew survived much further than his father. Okay, so, you know, it feels very much like a movement is being born in this moment in time, right? Obviously, um, Games Workshop, Dungeons and Dragons, like this was, you know, the, really the start of something different in the world. Did it feel that way? Well, there was no real, there was no real industry at the time. We were making it up as, as we went along and we were able to make many mistakes and not get punished too much for them. We were very naive as business people. We were just driven by passion. We, wouldn't, we hadn't set off to make money. Obviously, success came along, but that should be a byproduct of doing something that you really enjoy doing and what you're really passionate about. So we went to the States in 76, signed up all these fledgling companies, uh, ordered a ton of games, had nowhere to send them to other than to my girlfriend at the Times flat. And we came back to the UK with no money, nowhere to live and no office. So we go to the bank manager and say, hi, we're the UK agents for Dungeons & Dragons. Can you give us £10,000, please? And he looked at us rather like a dog watching television, had no understanding of what we were talking about and asked us to leave. So we were quite annoyed about that because you know, why wouldn't the bank manager lend us money? But now, of course, you understand why we were not at all prepared. Um, it's easy to criticize investors saying you know, they can't see what, what we're trying to achieve. But often the creatives don't know how to present to the money. And we certainly didn't then. We had no investment memorandum, no cash flows, no projections, nothing other than our enthusiasm, which meant, of course, that we had to find a small office at the back of a state agent in Shepherd's Bush. And that's the only money we had. It was like £10 a week, but we had nowhere to live. So we had to live in Steve's van for nearly three months, which we parked outside the office, joined the local squash club uh, for a shave and a shower, etc. in the morning, got really good at squash by default, led this very triangular life for six or seven months as as we slowly grew the business because everything had to be out of cash flow. And we didn't even think about getting equity investment because we didn't really understand what that meant. And we didn't want to let go of the business in any way. So it was a very gradual growth, always hampered by cash flow constraints. Until 1977, we started White Dwarf magazine to replace Alan Weasel. And that then brought us to a much wider audience. We started Citadel Miniatures in 1978 and we opened our very first retail store in April 78. And that was really a big changing, big moment in time for the for the business. At this point, taking no investment in? No investment in, no, none. And you talk about cash flow, but I guess I'm interested, you know, back then you're creating like wooden board games, right? No, the board games didn't last for very long. They, oh, I see. We okay. gave, all, gave that up as soon as, as D&D came along, just about or not long thereafter. And said it was then Steve and I and, and John left the, left the business. But um, you know, that first opening of the workshop store in 78 was this big moment. And we thought, we really are into something here. And I think that that time we were then eventually able to get a bank loan and expand the business. But we didn't have any, any equity investment. And then in a year later, our three-year exclusive had run out with Dungeons & Dragons. And Gary Gygax came over and said, I want to merge these two companies. 
TSR, his company, Games Workshop Us, and we'd be given a third of the NUCO, of the combined entity. But being independent young Brits and not want to spend half our time in 90 miles west of Chicago, uh, we said no to that opportunity. Which meant, of course, that we lost exclusivity to D&D. Whilst we remained the largest distributor, we then lost our exclusivity. And we suddenly realized that we need something else to replace D&D. I think that's one thing that stuck with me all the way through my business life in games is that intellectual property ownership is so important. Not only do you only control your own destiny, you increase the value of the business, a much higher multiple if you were to exit. In the games industry in particular, you often see in video games that studios and developers have to trade away their IP for project finance, which is a great shame in my mind. So if you can hang on to it, great. So that's really how Warhammer came about. We started off publishing and designing board games and ultimately Warhammer came out of Citadel Studios. That was our our miniatures factory up in Nottingham. And then I carried that forward. Of course, I'm sure you'll ask about it more, but it went moving into IDOS, into video games from Tomb Raider, Hitman, Championship Manager, Deus Ex. These are all games that we own the IP of. And therefore, you also get incremental revenue from licensing and merchandising the Tomb Raider film, for example. So IP ownership's always been on my song sheet. So we're going to talk about IP ownership. I, uh, I'm... I'm at- <laughs> surprisingly excited to talk about it. Well, didn't think I'd be saying that to anyone. I usually have to talk to my own trademark lawyers at my company Heights, and it's my least interesting, one of my least interesting conversations I might have over a quarter. Yet today, I'm actually really excited to talk about it. But maybe that's because I'm talking to an entrepreneur, not a lawyer, which is always more fun. So just coming back to that moment, you obviously, in life, we're presented with opportunities, and they can go either way. Sounds to me like you actually had a really good relationship with Gary from Dungeons and Dragons. And when he came over and, and made this offer to you, can you, I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but can you actually reflect back and remember, you know, how did this make you guys feel? Like, you know, telling the story about being three guys and then two and the squash court and 10 pound an office. It's like one of the biggest games in the world and someone who's so impressed with you. And he comes over to the UK to make an offer to you to merge and then actually the conversation and the decision to turn it down. I'd love to know a little bit more about that moment because was it an easy decision for you? Was it not? Were you flattered? Did you care? Did you have any sort of awareness of, I guess, the impression you must have made on another person, another business Well, he'd become a friend over time. It's not as though we hadn't seen him during those intervening three years. We went to the States quite a lot and he occasionally came over here. So it wasn't a, a kind of corporate America confrontation conversation it was very amicable conversation although he was surprised and disappointed that we said no and not happy obviously and his two fellow directors the bloom brothers were very unhappy about it and he did say listen we're gonna have to set up tsr uk if you turn down this opportunity and we said understood but we want to remain independent and so for the next 18 months we remained the larger distributor because people shops came to us not just for D, but for all the other games companies that we represented games from like RuneQuest and traveler and a whole range of various board games and role-playing games so they could get the whole lot from us and white dwarf magazine and citadel miniatures so we knew we weren't going to re- lose our trade sales we all, all we lost was our exclusivity but in the meantime we started making our own board games like talisman and judge dread and a whole bunch of other games that we published under license from the u.s but the, again, the big moment was the, the, the launch of, of Warhammer. It sold out almost immediately. Brian Ansell was the managing director of Citadel Miniatures, and he reinvested in that title and did second set quite quickly. And then by 1987, Warhammer 40,000 40, came out, and the rest, of they say, is history. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So growing up, I, I was just a humongous Warhammer and then Warhammer 40,000 and then Necromundia and like all of these games, like they really played a massive part in defining my childhood. And I always, I always felt like when there were times when you wouldn't necessarily fit in with everyone else, those games were a really good opportunity to find your tribe. Because I think what was interesting about certainly Warhammer 40,000, which I was really into for many years for me that game was always like people were either really into it or just not at all like they just didn't get it and like who can be bothered to spend all that time doing that and painting the characters and all of this stuff or you are just super into it so in a way i like when i was younger i just remember like it almost like helped me make friends i I don't know if you ever had like customer feedback about that or you can relate to that but that i always felt that way i felt like there was a sort of social aspect to it where you would find people who wanted to play it with you and, you know, and, and lots of people who just didn't and you would just tend to bond with the people who really did. Well, play is natural. When we arrive in this world, we learn through play. And society used to tell us that when you get to a certain age, you should stop playing. And I've never been signed up to that at all. I think play, never too young to start, never too old to stop playing games. It should be a lifelong enjoyment. And whether it's board games or role-playing games or video games or esports or tabletop games or Warhammer, it's great social fun. And, and why, why wouldn't you? And it's easy to describe people as geeks or nerds or something. You know, I'd rather be a nerd than follow the herd in many aspects of life. It's, uh, it's for me, play is just a wonderful experience. And there are so much, so many things around play that people don't even talk about. The power of play in terms of learning and social connections. Mm. In video games, what's happening, it's not a passive experience, it's an interactive experience. You're learning, you can't get through a game without problem solving, you're learning intuitively, you're not punished for making a mistake. Games are very creative. A game like Minecraft, a child can learn contextually by applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand. They can make glass, take that glass and put it in their environments. Games are often management simulations, even Rollercoast Tycoon, the physics of building the rise, the pricing required to make it an economically successful, the staffing levels. This is these are life skills, a management simulation whilst you're having fun. So what is absolutely is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. So it's no surprise the video games industry is now worth two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. There are three billion people playing. They can't all be termed as geeks and nerds. Games that you know way way more part of society culturally socially and economically than most people are ready to admit you know it's funny you mention uh rollercoaster tycoon i've i've said in another interview like i honestly feel like i learned how to be an entrepreneur and learned how exciting it was to be an entrepreneur by playing both that and theme hospital I used to absolutely love those games and you know to your point i think you're right i think you can play a variety of games and actually pick up on uh, this, this, I'm interested in this kind of skill or I'm interested in this kind of thing or not, right? So meandering back to your story, if I'm not mistaken, 
You started, you said in 1975, is that right? 75 with workshop, first shop in 78. First shop in 78. And then in 1991, is it? You exit the business. Yes. I'd like to understand a little bit about that journey for you. Because there's a couple, there's a few things that are interesting. One is, I'm sure you have opinions of as an angel investor, but typically I'm an angel investor as well. So typically if I advise startups, especially young entrepreneurs, I'm like, you just got to expect that you're going to be in this business for 10 years if it goes well. So don't listen to the narrative of like the two, three year exit, whatever. It's just ridiculous and so rare. That's more likely if it fails, maybe it'll be sub five years, but you've got to be able to imagine you're in this business for 10 years. For you, you know, 1975 to 1991, it's actually a very long time in that kind of timescale. So I guess I'm wondering, how did it come about and how did it feel to you to leave the company that you started? Was it something that you actually wanted to do so you could explore new things? Did it sort of just fall on your lap and come together? I'd love you to share, what's it like exiting a company in 1991 and what were the sort of cultural uh, feelings you had around it and how do you think they're different to what you see today in entrepreneurs? Well, to your first comment, I personally would never start a company looking to exit in three years. I'm looking to start a company because I want to be in it for a long time because it's going to be based on something I really enjoy. And that's always been my mantra is to do what you enjoy doing. If you can possibly turn it into a business, please do. But how we came to sell out was a not a, on a whim. It was part of a 17-year process that led to that. In 1982, Steve Jackson and I started writing interactive game books called Fighting Fantasy, and they were a global phenomenon. They sold over 20 million copies. These were a branching narrative book with a game system attached to them, a kind of a distillation of a role-playing game into book format, broken into 400 paragraphs. At the end of each paragraph, the reader make a choice. They were the very first interactive books with a game system attached to them. Titles like Warlock of Firetop Mountain, Forest of Doom, City of Thieves. And they were translated into over 25 languages, sold into over 35 countries. And they got a whole generation of children reading. They were game books. And Steve and I were being sent on author tours around the world by Penguin Books, because they weren't published by Games Workshop, our own company. And so going to Australia and the United States and New Zealand and Japan and all over Europe and trying to write books at the same time as running a business that was expanding was causing a huge strain on our personal lives. Running workshop during the day, going to now our respective homes and writing books to like two in the morning and then having to be away for 10 days on a, an author tour. And that's why we appointed in 1996 Brian Ansell, who was MD of Citadel Miniature as group managing director to allow Steve and I to be not so involved on a day-to-day -day basis. And that carried on until 1991, when the management buyout proposal was, was presented to us, not by Brian himself, but by Tom Kirby and a private equity company. And Steve and I, of course, being massively emotionally attached to Games Workshop, were less inclined to sell out entirely, but it was a stipulation of the private equity company to do so. And so, Brian, Keith Pinfold, who was another shareholder, who was the financial director, Steve Jackson and I sold out to the MBO and they floated the company two years later. And as you've pointed out quite, quite uh, painfully, that Games Workshop is now worth three and a half billion pounds. So some might say we sold out a little early in 1991, but absolutely no regrets because in 1984, I'd acquired equity in a video game startup studio called Domark. And with some of the proceeds from the sale of workshop, I invested in Domark, joined as vice chairman, realized that the company was undercapitalized. So we put four companies together to create Nuco IDOS, which we floated on the London Stock Exchange in 1995. I became executive chairman of the group and um, we acquired the other company, the only other company in listed in the space, which is called Center Gold. And with Center Gold came Laro Croft, which is on development. And I saw Laro six months before it was finished and we bought the company. Launched Tomb Raider in 1996. I think we had 100,000 units in the budget and sold 7 million copies over time of, of just Tomb Raider 1. So, you know, I, I, I didn't look back at all. Whilst there was a bit of an emotional rift at the beginning when we sold Workshop, just carried on because I was still in games with 
Final Fantasy game books and now with, with video games and IDOS. But it was an amazing time, the early years of Games Workshop. I mean, described the whole thing in a book I wrote, which published last year called Dice Man, which is the origin story of Games Workshop, tells all about the van and on the road going to the States and all the mistakes we made and um, in a kind of personal memoir, a lot of um, fun stories as well as the business side of the early years of Workshop. So coming back to the moment then that you you did decide to sell. So the number that's reported is £10 million, is that correct? Well, it's never been publicly disclosed, but it was between four of us. It certainly was no more than that. It's, and it was it was less, but it was no more, certainly no more than that. There's something that I don't understand, which is like often, often with private equity buyouts and stuff, yeah, it all makes sense. Uh, get rid of get get rid of people. Have the total ownership. Have the IP, obviously, and then the capital to grow it. In your case, it seems a bit of an unusual choice because um, having the founders out, you guys were, from what I can understand, it like certainly the, the chief storytellers. Um, this is a business of stories, so I find that to be quite an unusual scenario and perhaps as someone who's been involved in gaming all your life where you can uh, appreciate the value of great storytelling maybe you know more about it than I do where you're like well there's always a next storyteller or whatever but for me I hear that and I'm like that's bonkers you're writing these books you're like endlessly creative and you understand your audience like what makes a private equity company it almost seems like a surprise they've gone on to do so well like without you I guess is what I'm trying to say well, Workshop had become a, a machine, effectively, in many respects. It was verti- vertically integrated, and that wasn't that was by chance. I mean, people, a, a reporter said to me, "Oh, it's amazing that you've set up this business, which is cash generative. You're selling your own products through your own shops, promoted by your own magazine, being able to get the cash in before you have to pay your suppliers. What a brilliant business model!" The reason why we opened our own shop is because we couldn't get enough independent shops to stock our stuff the reason why we published our own magazine white dwarf because we couldn't get enough pr around what we were trying to do and the reason we started our own miniatures factory was because there wasn't any decent miniatures around at that time and workshop grew off on the back of that and then focused more on on its own ip stopped distributing independent products from american publishers and just focused wholly 100% 100% on its own IP. And I guess nobody's indispensable, neither Steve nor I, of course. And if they had now a well-old machines with all the decisions being made in Nottingham, there was no real reason for us to stay on. Plus, Steve and I were preoccupied with fighting fancy game books, and that was still going at an incredible rapid rate. And my head had been turned quite a lot by video games and seeing the opportunity there. So I think it just made sense for all parties. So... You have this this payout. So for the first time, you know, you're experiencing what it's like not to be a dreamer living in a van and trying to build a business, but actually a credible businessman with uh, a lot of experience behind you at this point with deep special specialty. How did the opportunity with Domark come about? I was approached by the founders, um, Dominic Wheatley and Mark Strawn. I had number one, two, and three in the children's bestsellers list, and they wanted to create for their first game an adventure game, a narrative-based game, and offer a prize of £25,000 for the first person to solve it. So they, uh, they came to me knocking on my door at workshop and said, would I design or write the story for their, their, their launch product? I said, yes. And uh, we had it programmed in Hungary for secrecy, so the... <laughs> The, the secrets would be kept and some of the clues were in the rule in the rule book some in in the game itself and ultimately if you figured it out you'd end up with a phone number which if you dialed would leave a recorded message in a solicitor's office on the telephone machine recording machine and um, somebody was presented with the twenty five thousand pound prize but it was because my books were numbered one two and three that they came to me in the first place so I, I wrote the the story for, for Eureka, as it was called, and got on with Dominic and Mark. And when I started a workshop, they asked me if I'd join them and invest in the company, which I, I did. And I suppose, actually, you know, depending on when you grew up, um, and probably also your gender and your interests, you know, the different games that uh, Domart, which became IDOS, actually created, um, you'll have experienced those phenomenons at different times. So Championship Manager, for example, 
as a boy growing up, as an Arsenal supporter, you know, all my friends love football. You know, Championship Manager was the game. Everyone played it as far as I was concerned in my world. Then you have something like Tomb Raider come out. And I think the reason for its popularity, obviously, is completely groundbreaking. You guys also created Hitman. You've just talked about, um, you know, IP in the UK, which I'd love to spend some time on. You know, I was having a talk with the Secret Leaders team just before, you know, um, Rockstar Games is a great example of this, right? Up in Scotland, creating the Grand Theft Auto series. You know, I think there's just, there are some really brilliant examples of amazing IP and amazing global successes coming out of the UK. The question is, how good are we at keeping it? How good are we at monetizing it? And um, I'd love to explore this with you because who better? When I decided to leave IDOS, when it was acquired by Squares of Japan, I became an angel investor and had some very good successes in that space. I was a seed investor in Playdemic that created the global blockbuster mobile game Golf Clash. We sold out to Warner Brothers, who ultimately sold Playdemic to Electronic Arts for $1.3 billion. There's also a seed investor in Mediatonic that created Fall Guys. Again, sold out to PE, and PE sold it on to Epic Games for some $700 million. So as a country, we do create incredible content. Now, for me, the problem you say is, whilst we're brilliant at creating IP, we're not always able to hang on to it for whatever reason. And if I said to you, Grand Theft Auto, Tomb Raider, uh, Fable, Championship Manager, Fall Guys, Golf Clash, and a host of others, the common denominator is they were all created in the UK, but they're all owned by foreign companies. Now, some might argue that's great because the result is you get inward investment, job security. But if the profit's being banked overseas, that doesn't do this country the service it deserves and to become effectively a work for high nation working on content that this country's created but not benefiting from it ultimately is not great so there needs to be more access to capital in this country we've over, always over delivered with content always been underserved by capital and as i alluded to earlier on the creators have not always been the best at presenting to capital but on the flip side of that capital is not really understood what good looks like in the game space and other creative injuries might I add. So there needs to be a greater connection between the makers and the money in this space particularly. Thinking about the world today. So I guess when you were talking, let me take you through my, my train of thought. Whilst you were talking, um, I was thinking, uh, you know, where is a good example of the UK actually holding on a little bit, holding its nerve a little bit? And maybe, you know, not in the games market, but something like ARM, the chip manufacturer, to an extent, you could argue... And then there's this sort of latest discussion, though, that they're going to list in the USA anyway. And so even in that context, you know, doesn't quite uh, do us the, the service it required. And I was listening to a podcast earlier about NVIDIA, you know, who make the chips. And they were discussing how NVIDIA's stranglehold, you know, firstly, could only really exist in the USA because it takes infinite amounts of funding over such a long period of time to believe in this future that might well exist, but everyone sort of has to hope and why that, you know, the UK just isn't, like you say, set up for something like that. But I thought what was really interesting was this, this new future that the chips will enable in gaming, where you're not just interacting with, uh, you know, a 3D player and, and in an interactive world with a whole bunch of role-playing presets, but the character itself is a AI and is so reflecting and responding to you in real time. I was wondering if you had you know, any thoughts for us on what the future of gaming holds as someone who spent so long in this space. Is this new world completely insanely baffling to you? Is it a foregone conclusion? I'd love to know what your thoughts are about the next 10 years in gaming. Well, it's wonderfully baffling. You never know what's going to happen next. What I do know is that in video games, technology transform the industry, not on a monthly basis, but on a constant basis, presenting new opportunities, but new challenges at the same time. How are we going to take advantage of this new platform that's been presented to us? How are we going to migrate our content from one platform to another? How are we going to engage with new audiences? How are we going to change our business models to reflect the digital world, which is connected? How do we put less barriers in front of consumers so they can access our content without friction? How can we upsell them content? How do we acquire, retain, and monetize people over time in a way that they enjoy and don't feel resentful about? 
And what about AI? Will we be dealing with effectively sentient beings in our game worlds? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? The point is that the whole thing is a wonderful experience and problem to have. And whilst I've come originally from an analog world, now into digital worlds of gaming, it's no less a thrilling experience. But it's all this sort of connected social groups of people having fun together, which has always intrigued me and, and made me feel good about the industry. And if you think about video games, how much it has grown in such a short time. Technology transforms the opportunity. We had these very basic machines and the consoles came along and then Apple sees, then Facebook becomes a platform for social games at the turn of the century. Then along comes Apple seeing the opportunity for casual games players and introducing the touch screen. And with a simple swipe of your finger across a screen, you can play very simple games and a very accessible storefront in the app store where all you can eat is presented right there. VR comes along, AR comes along, esports, then we're talking about the metaverse worlds, persistent worlds, MMOs, and now we're talking about Web3 and AI worlds. This is a wonderful problem to have and uh, what makes it so attractive and appealing to me. I mean, work and play is the same for me. I will never retire because it's it's an amazing place to, to, to work. So I guess I'm, I'm keen to know as an angel investor, what sort of advice is someone with your experience actually passing on to people right now who approach you as the new founders and new CEOs of gaming startups? Well, well I have a checklist when I'm investing in, in the games industry. I think the First and foremost, when people say, what are the three most important things about a game? I will say, gameplay, gameplay, gameplay. Graphics and technology, whilst absolutely vital, play a supporting role to the gameplay experience. You'll always play a game that plays well and looks poor over a game that looks great but plays poorly. You play, you buy it for the playing experience. But that aside, the first thing I look at is the senior leadership team. Is the managing director and creative director on equal footing? Mediatonic and Playdemic, both unicorns, both those companies had exactly that setup, and they both enable each other to do well. In the UK, there's sometimes a case where the creative entrepreneur does not want to hand over the running of the company to somebody else. They feel they're kind of loss of control, but they shouldn't feel like that. They shouldn't be doing the jobs that they can't do or shouldn't be doing. They should be concentrating on the content and let the running of the business left to somebody who does that by trade. There's no point in the creative director doing the VAT returns or ordering the toilet rolls. Similarly, you shouldn't let the bean counter uh, decide what products you're going to make because they're likely want to make something that was successful last year rather than that we could be successful next year. And beyond that, technology, can they scale a business? Will it not fall over? What intellectual properties do they own? As you know, IP is very important to me. And then a whole raft of questions around monetization and retention of users and understanding total addressable market and publishing and all the services that have to be provided for a company in the games industry to be successful. So that's what I, my kind of main points as an angel investor. And also now I'm a general partner in my own venture capital company, Hero Capital. It's a VC fund set up in 2018 with two other ex-entrepreneurs, Luke Alvarez and Cherry Freeman to fill the gap that I was talking about earlier, the scale-up capital for UK and European companies in video games, connected fitness and wellness and esports and technologies and anything that throws off data that can be monetized in the in the in the in now and in the future. So we raised 150 million pounds for our first fund, all fully deployed apart from the follow-on capital. We're now raising Hero Fund 2, which is aiming to be 300 million euros. And we're on well on our way to doing that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I I heard the first number and I was like, that, I, wonder, I wonder your perspective on is that enough? But yeah, I think 300 million starts to feel a bit more competitive. The very idea that so much of the IP comes from the UK, there's so many great experiences of uh, hits and winners here. It's kind of absurd there's not multiple billion pound funds for it, genuinely. Well, most of the capital comes from the US these, or China and sometimes from Japan. Sadly, not enough from the UK, but maybe that's our lot in life. We're very good at creating it and maybe we continue to keep keep doing that too. Uh, and we have to keep 
selling it off and starting again, so be it. If there's just capital does not exist here, that's sad. But you, know, you mentioned ARM listing in the US. They're not the only tech company to moving towards the US. And pension funds are less investing in the UK markets than they used to. So I think the market here has to kind of move away from a dividend-based analysis of the market rather than to a growth view to take a, a longer view on their equity in, in, uh, in tech and content companies than they've done previously. I know a lot of pension funds are not able to invest in, in video games companies, for example. And if you think about the video games industry in itself, not only is it a $250 billion industry with 3 billion people playing it, it kind of ticks all the right boxes for the digital economy. During the pandemic, nobody was furloughed because the content was created digitally and it was consumed digitally. And it's green, it's high-tech, high skills, intellectual property creating, instant export story, 90% of content on day one goes to whatever digital platform people use to access a global market. And it's re regional, which of course the government loves. It doesn't have to be in London to be successful. And a lot of companies are even remote entirely. So there's a great opportunity for the gaming industry to be even bigger in the UK, but the perception around it needs to change. We need to be send a positive message to, to parents, to guardians, to teachers, and to investors to say, this is a wonderful creative industry. It's the merging of technology and art, and it speaks to Generation Z. Everything they do is interactive, and, and they want their entertainment to be interactive. That's why games are so prevalent today because of the, it speaks to them as human beings, how they operate in this world. So let's get more senior politicians into game studios with that photo opportunity rather than standing outside some widget factory making drain pipes with a hard hat and a high-vis jacket. Let's get some more positivity in the media around games industry. As one of the men behind, you know, multiple billion dollar game companies, I'm interested in your perspective then about the role that gaming can play in education over the next decade. Well, I, I would argue that games are a contextual hub for, for learning. I said it earlier about the problem solving, the intuitive learning, the creativity, the effective simulation, business management simulation that games represent. And if you think when you're flying to your next destination, how the pilots learn to fly... Would you prefer that they learned by reading a book? Now, how many degrees do we move the aileron? Was it 15 or 20? I can't remember. Or that they use simulation software, which is effectively a game without scoring. And I think games contextualize learning like no other way. There's the broadcast model and knowledge recall model does not work with Generation Z. So I don't for one minute say that children should be playing games in school, but you can take principles of games-based learning and apply them to cross-curricular, multidisciplinary subjects with projects, collaboration, let children work in teams because that's what we do in the workplace. Don't concentrate on the standardized model of how children should be assessed. To, so you can say one person is able, another one is less able. This school is better than that school. Just trying to get this standardized metric. I don't know why we punish kids for getting subjects wrong that they're, they're never ever doing their real lives. It's a bit like being a Manchester City fan. You said you're Arsenal. It's a bit like Pep Guardiola going to Erling Haaland saying, you know, your goal scoring has been really great, but you really need to concentrate on your goalkeeping. I'm really not happy with your goalkeeping. He's never going to be a goalkeeper. So why punish him for, for that? Let's play to the strengths of children. Love learning, often hate school. But if you can get them in more engaged learning, how they referencing the Minecraft example, learning by doing, applied knowledge, not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, less rote learning, make art fundamental part of learning, not a nice to have, because art is so essential, not arts for art's sake, but children will learn, they'll give them diverse thinking, they'll be able to join the left side to the right side of their brain. I mean, subjects like if you want to become an architect, you need the visual aesthetic through art to how a building looks beautiful. At the same time, the mathematics to make sure the building doesn't fall down and kill you. So it's bringing the arts and sciences together, I think, is so key and fundamental to how the Livingstone Academy in Bournemouth will be operating. Curious about your, your personal tastes. So if I may... As the man involved in launching three of the biggest smash hit successes ever, championship manager, 
Tomb Raider and Hitman. What are your three favorite video games? And you're not allowed to choose those three. Well, across a broad spectrum of time, I would have to include Virtua Tennis on the Dreamcast. I enjoyed Advance Wars uh, from Nintendo on the DS, and I really enjoy Civilization. Strategy games are really my cup of tea. I'm too old for any kind of Twitch games. I'm I'm dead about five seconds having entered any game, so it's just pointless even trying to, to start. Well, what's the most recent game that you picked up and really loved? I don't play so many new games. I play a lot of new board games more than I do video games, to be honest. In this room, there's 1,500 board games. I haven't played them all, but we do play on a weekly basis because I just like that social fun of being around the table, the smiling assassin doing, doing a deal then immediately reneging on it as soon as possible. Well, then I've definitely got to ask, as the founder of Warhammer 40,000, uh, bringing Dungeons and Dragons, a board game, to Europe, what's your favourite board game? Or give, give me three of your favourite board games. So there's 1,500 <laughs> in the room you're in right now. Tell me your top three. Okay, I'll tell you my top four, because when people say, what's my favourite game? I say, that's a bit like asking me, what's my favourite child? And I've got four. So I'll give you four games that we're currently playing. I mean, tastes change and, and circumstances change, whether you want to play with two people, six people, a long game, a short game, abstract game, thematic game. It depends on, on the moment. But games we currently enjoy as a group are Splendor. That's S-P-L-E-N-D-O-R. Uh, Century Spice Road, Small World, and Seven Wonders. What's been your uh, What's been your, your misses? We've talked a lot about your successes. What have been misses? You missed out on any really great games you could have invested in, companies you could have invested in, you could have had your name attached to? Well, we had a, f- a few near misses and a couple of bad decisions, I'm sure. But um, the near misses were, at Workshop, we created a game called Tower Blocks, which was pretty identical to what became the global success Jenga. Um, we, ours are called Tower Blocks, and I've got a copy on my shelf, anyone who wants to see it. When I went to the, I think it was the New York Toy Fair many years ago, the rights for Trivial Pursuit were up for a, for European distribution. I think I kind of passed up on that, thinking, who wants to play questions and answers over a board game? You can, don't need a board for that. And... Um, you can be forgiven for missing up on that one. I'm I'm almost surprised it was so popular. And there's some video games. I remember being on the fledgling Blizzard stand when they were talking about uh, World of Warcraft or Warcraft as it was then. And we were talking about Warhammer and Warcraft, how it could possibly have influenced uh, <laughs> Warcraft and talking very loosely about doing the distribution, but nothing came of that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are many other examples of, of saying uh, no when I should have said yes, but hey, we're all human. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't be expected to hit every single one of them. Okay, what are your lessons for entrepreneurs that are listening to this now who are interested in the gaming market? Yeah. It's an enormous market. What do you have to say to them about uh, how to win? You've got to try. And if you fail, fail fast. I've heard that many times before, I'm sure. But don't see failure as a bad thing. It's just success, work in progress. And you learn an awful lot from it and um, have a lot of self-belief and try to be different uh, follow your heart and be true to yourself and treat people well you know we're all teams i've never had a hierarchical approach to to running companies and i i like the industry as well because it doesn't have celebrity it's a very humble industry in the in the main we don't have like other entertainment industries we don't have film stars rock stars tv stars it's a very collaborative industry probably the a lot of that's become from having to defend it as an industry. It's never had the best headlines in some of the national newspapers. And yet I would always say the power of play is absolutely wonderful and a positive for society. I mean, some amazing charities are based around games. Uh, I'm vice president of a charity called Special Effects that modifies games, controls, equipment to give children with severe disabilities the opportunity to be engaged in a world they would otherwise not have any engagement with. And it gives them a feeling of being, which would be denied otherwise. And there's so many companies where people have started off or had their curiosity through games or learned to program through games, uh, whether it's Reid Hoffman or Mark Zuckerberg and others all attribute games to their 
start in life as an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's a great point. Didn't actually make so much of the connection there, but I totally see where you're coming from. You mentioned celebrity. Uh, you know, there's no celebrity in games, etc. But of course, games have permeated into Hollywood massively. And one of the ones that everyone will be thinking of is Lara Croft and Angelina Jolie. So did you get a chance to meet her? I did on the set of Tomb Raider. What was that like? That must have been pretty cool. And she had an incredible presence. I really didn't really know what to say. Not talking about just her beauty, but she had that <laughs> intelligence and calmness and just amazing aura of of just being a superstar actress, thinker, and just all-round amazing person. Yeah, okay. And I'm sure if we asked her for her opinion on Ian, she'd have said the <laughs> who? same. She'd just so... say, who? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure she wouldn't, Ian. She would. Anyway, listen, it's been a massive... A massive pleasure having you on Secret Leaders. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible journey of multiple decades shaping the gaming industry in the UK. I sincerely hope that we manage to take the lessons that you're trying to share more of, which is keeping our brilliance RIP and hopefully, obviously, also funding things so that we can build bigger and better here in the UK and start competing internationally as well. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. Just keep rolling the dice. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference and we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.